we start today's episode, just to let you know, you can now nominate for the 2025 Northern Power Women Awards. To be in with a chance of celebrating with changemakers, trailblazers and advocates on the 6th of March 2025. Nominate now at wearepower.net. Power Women podcast for your career and your life, no matter what business you're in. Hello and welcome to a chilly November, but a brand new episode of the Northern Power Women podcast, episode 17. Do women really want to be given a seat at the table? I'm Sam Walker and this month we're in Manchester for a very special episode in association with Women in the Law UK. A big thank you to Clark Wilmot, who hosted our brilliant panel discussion, where we talked about northern transport and connectivity, mental health in the workplace, and how we get more women to the top in law. I've no life outside of work. I don't know how you manage it. But the last thing you want to do is get to be a fairly senior partner, and then someone say, do you know what, we need a few more women on our board, so she'll do, she'll do, she'll do. Sally Penny, top barrister and founder of Women in the Law UK, caught up with me to talk about her work-life balance, what inspired her into law and how her family reacted. My parents had drummed into me because when I said I wanted to become a barrister, they weren't very impressed. But I they weren't very impressed? No. They, I mean, <laughs> I, initially I wanted to be a policewoman, but they said I was too short. But that was another way to sort of uh, deter me. And then they were saying, you know, this is a profession where we didn't have many minorities and we didn't know anybody who was a barrister. So to them, it must have just seemed like ludicrous. And in Ask the Hive, one listener got in touch to ask, how do we get men to encourage more female leadership? And a lot of our clients want to see women at the table making decisions. And so for client-focused and client-driven businesses, the male leaders at the top of those businesses need to understand that that's what their clients are asking for. But first, a woman who has literally gone transatlantic this month, the one and only founder of Northern Power Women, Simone Roche, MBE. It's November. Where is the year gone? We're delighted that episode 17 has been sponsored by Women in the Law UK, founded by our very own power lister, Sally Penny. Big thanks to Clark Wilmot for hosting a stellar panel, including Helen Wong, MBE, Deborah Ward and James Brown. Find out more about Women in the Law UK at womeninthelawuk.com or on Twitter. And look out for their up-and-coming launches in Liverpool and Leeds this month in November. It's a busy, busy time for us at Northern Power Women, launching our mentoring programme in partnership with Michael Page, who are committed to supporting and growing female talent across the North. It's the fourth year of the Northern Power Women Awards. Can you believe it? Um, Supported by Manchester Airport Group. We've had hundreds of nominations and they all close on the 26th of November. We've got 10 categories, including Transformational Leader, Person with Purpose, Agent of Change and our Innovation Award. So please do recognise and celebrate a role model today. Also help us swell the numbers of our power list and future list. So if there's someone out there that's influencing or someone out there that's a future leader, change maker, then please get your nomination in today. Northernpowerwomen.com forward slash awards. Make it really tricky for our judges. 
We've got an amazing lineup, including Professor Jane Turner, OBE, Adrian Mills from the BBC. Uh, we've got the chairs of local local enterprise partnership, including Mike Blackburn, Andrew Hodgson, and Roger Marsh, OBE, and also the amazing Jacqueline Dorocus. So give them something to get their teeth stuck into when they get to that judging. Northern Power Futures take place this month on the 23rd and 24th of November at the Manchester Central Convention Centre. So whether you want to inform or be informed, come along to this brilliant event supported by EY, Vodafone, the Cooperative Bank, Liverpool Football Club, uh, Mediacom North, we've also got the Army, Navy, Air Force there, MSP, Synexus, Yorkshire Building Society, Shop Direct and Manchester Airport Group. So please come along and have a look at our three stages in an expo uh, during this two-day event. Uh, we've got some community places available too, so if you would like to bring some, um, some individuals along, then please get in touch at hello at northernpowerfutures.com. Also find out information about the 10th of February event at the Boiler Shop in Newcastle. Tickets have just gone on sale for a limited time at £10 for Northern Power Futures in the North East. So please do get involved. And with so much going on, I wanted to bay a big, big heartfelt thank you to our brilliant team of volunteers and supporters um, led by the fabulous M, um, Fran, Jane, Adele, Advita, Danielle, Sammy, Emma too, Di and Joanna, who are all helping drive forward Northern Power Women and Northern Power Futures. So thank you so much. Please join in our conversations and get involved in the great events that we've got. And thank you again for Women in the Law UK for sponsoring this month's episode. I'll take a breath. <laughs> I need to lie down after that, let alone you, Simone. What a woman. Thank you so much for the update. Do make sure you keep up to date with everything we're up to on Twitter, at North Power Women, and you can find us online at northernpowerwomen.com. Now, to this month's discussion panel. It was really busy and really lively, actually, this one. Don't forget, there is a great networking opportunity to be had at our panel recordings. I'll tell you how you can be part of future get-togethers after we've heard this month's. So we'll start with a very warm welcome that we got from our hosts, Clark Wilmot, and also our sponsors, Women in the Law UK. Thanks very much for your coming um, out this evening and welcome very much to Clark Wilmot and to the Northern Power Women podcast. I hope everyone's had a chance to pick up the various leaflets going around and that everyone's set in with lots of uh, answers to questions and generally uh, are here to give the speakers a hard time <laughs> as much as possible. And um, with that, I'd like to hand over to Sally Penny, who's going to introduce the event. As Sally is the reason why uh, we are hosting this, because the one thing you must never do is say... <laughs> Oh, I suppose we could probably do that <laughs> when you happen to be sitting having a quiet glass of wine with Sally and she says, I've got this idea, would you like? So without more ado, Sally Penny of Kenworthy Chambers. Um, thank you very much. That was Susan Hall who failed to... Uh, introduce herself. Uh, uh, Susan is, a, is an amazing partner here at Clark Wilmot and I'm so grateful to her for agreeing to host uh, this, uh, one of my many crazy ideas, but as you'll see, it's a fantastic um, event. Uh, firstly, my name is Sally Penny. I am at Kevinworthy's Chambers. I'm a barrister. This is just a bit of a hobby. Uh, Women in the Law UK and business, and we're just trying to encourage and support the next
next generation of lawyers, men and women, so it's great to see both here. Um, I don't know everybody here. Everyone looks the same from this light, uh, which, is, uh, which is great. Uh, and um, we've got a great evening planned. I just wanted to say a, a couple of things very quickly and a couple of thank yous. Uh, firstly, I set up Women in the Law and Business UK because there weren't very many role models. That was the sole purpose, and it's about progression. There aren't very many women at the top, uh, and of those who they are, there are, um, they don't really pull up uh, after themselves. By that, I mean pull up others and so bring those who are coming up in the profession or that mid-level behind them. And I think we can all learn from each other. So that was the main reason why. And so um, our events, a roundtable events, they're all about upskilling and educational uh, events and they culminate in an annual dinner where we have a great speaker like Baroness Hale. So that's what it's about. Um, this event tonight, I'm especially delighted uh, because we've, it's been supported and sponsored by Novitas, which is where Deborah Ward is from. They're in litigation funding. And of course, Clark Wilmont Clark, who has sponsored us, so I'm delighted. And Northern Power Women Awards. I know I'm speaking really quickly. That's just to get to the main course um, of this evening, which is coming. But Northern Power Women and Northern Power Women Awards, which I've been involved with since Simone set it up. And Simone Roach, soon to be Simone Roach, MBE, and uh, Sam Walker, being quite a powerful duo. duo. Uh, and they're all about improving the gender diversity in the north of England so that there's a balance. <laughs> not just in Manchester, not just in Liverpool, but the north, which obviously is more than those two cities. Uh, and so I'm delighted that we've finally got round to doing something great here, uh, supported by Clark Wilmot and Novita and all the team here. There are three Emmas here, uh, Clark Wilmot, who helped put this event together, and Novitas, who obviously see the benefit in hosting this event. So thank you all for being here. We encourage you to come to some more events thereafter, and the Northern Power Women Awards are open. If you haven't nominated anybody, do so tonight. Uh, come to the dinner, which uh, the awards dinner, which is on the 18th. I haven't been asked to do this. I'm just doing it off the cuff. Um, <laughs> it's on the 18th of March. And finally, Clark Wilmot have each of the Northern... Uh, of the Women in Law events always donate to a charity. And it's so brilliant that Clark Wilmot's charity of the year is St Anne's Hospice, a local uh, 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 charity. And they're doing a sponsored bike challenge. I'm not doing it. Maybe they can ask James. Um, uh, which is uh, a huge task uh, of all their seven offices. So it's about 1,000 miles or something ridiculous. I think it's more than that. You can support that by texting CWBC. 55, which is just £5 pounds to 770 and just donate some money. St. Anne's Hospice do great work. So it'll be a real boost to their partnership. Uh, you could do that from home or indeed tonight. So there's no means of me checking, but I'll know. Um, <laughs> so have a great, great, great evening. You know, this is really good. It's informal, it's fun, and there are some great nibbles and drinks afterwards uh, for all, all of us to enjoy afterwards. Thanks very much. What? What a lovely welcome. It's still going on. Thanks so much for being here this evening. It's a kind of beautiful, balmy, that's slang for sweaty, evening in Manchester this evening. Thank you so much to the wonderful Clark Wilmot and to Women in Law who've welcomed us here tonight to record episode 17. I know, we've not aged a day, Simone, which is the beauty in it all. Uh, episode 17 of the Northern Power Women podcast. I'm Sam Walker. Uh, thank you so much for our three panellists who are joining us this evening. To Helen Wong, hello, who is, uh, I should say, MBE. 
I can't miss Helen's MBE off as well. Helen Wong, MBE, she's corporate partner at Clark Wilmot and um, specialising in healthcare. Now, Time's best-selling author, no less as well, just snuck that in, and also co-owner of Sweet Mandarin Restaurant in Manchester as well. Hello, welcome to you, Helen. Big hello to you, Deborah as well, Deborah Ward, who's an account uh, director for Novitas Loans, works with solicitors firms throughout the Northwest and the Midlands as well. Deborah decided to take a leap of faith a year ago and leave the legal world for a career in finance. Also, just a kind of all-round superwoman from what I've learned about her this evening as well. And last but not least, a big hello to James, James Brown, who's a partner at Hall Brown, managing partner and co-founder of Hall Brown Family Law, a boutique family firm with offices in Manchester and London. Um, The firm's won a number of awards, including Best Small Law Firm. He's looking coy. He's like, yeah, I know. (laughs) And Family Law Team of the Year as well. James is listed in Chambers and Partners as a leading individual in Legal 500 and is wearing yellow socks <laughs> which you can't see that's just made it better for everyone so thank you, welcome to our panellists, thank you so much okay anyone here driven into Manchester City Centre today just as a little hands up in there fair few, probably about, about half in fact I also had that privilege uh, earlier on, now you may or may not have heard this but some drivers we've learned could be charged to enter Manchester City Centre in a bid to urgently cut pollution. Now, we already know that public transport connectivity between northern cities is pretty poor. You can get from one side of London to the other fairly easily. Try and get from, say, Leeds to Sheffield or Manchester to Sheffield or Sheffield to Liverpool. It's kind of tough. I suppose the question is, if there's going to be restriction on driving, what could this mean for business in the north? Deborah, let me start with you. Um, Well... I think that, um, I mean, Manchester and a lot of the northern cities are vibrant. We've got a lot going on. So I think that people will make the way into the cities regardless. I mean, I have to admit that probably a charge will not affect me personally. I think that um, the council is going to have to bring in um, charges. I don't think there's any option. Um, And apparently our pollution levels are illegal and on par with um, London. But um, I think in order to do that, then they've got to um, still promote businesses by investing further in the uh, public transport system. Um, If I'm going to other cities, and I usually would drive. um, Recently, I had um, an operation on my wrist and was unable to drive, so I had to use a train to get to Liverpool, Leeds, Newcastle, etc. And I found it okay, but then I wasn't travelling at peak time and I wasn't doing it every day. Um, I think that people who are travelling at peak time and travelling every day, you know, find the system quite appalling. And I think that, you know, if we are going to start charging drivers or trying to reduce the number of cars going into cities, then money has to be invested in the transport infrastructure. I think it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, James, you've got um, uh, um, an office, of course, in London. And when we look at the spend per capita for, on public transport in London, it just, I mean, it just dwarfs what happens here in the north. And if are you concerned about potential, potentially making it harder for drivers? I think it depends where the zone is going to be. And I know that sounds like a kind of solicitor dodge, but a few years ago when this was last floated, it was going to be as far out as the M60, which is the most enormous loop around the city in contrast to Zone 1, which you know, you're all familiar with in, in London. It's not going to affect our business at all, I don't think. We, you know, I cycle to work 
in the nicest possible way. Those people that drive in are probably able to shoulder the burden of the additional cost on top. Our clients will be able to afford it. They choose to park in Kendall's as it is, and they absolutely cavernate you when it comes to the uh, <coughs> costs that they charge. For, for people who aren't aware of that car park charge, perhaps you don't live in Manchester, you would need a second mortgage yeah. uh, <laughs> every time you pop in there. Yeah. Um, and I think between the cities, that's a much bigger question. Yeah. I think look, we're possibly staring down the barrel of the biggest recession this country has ever seen if the rumours are true in respect to Brexit. We already know that local authorities have no money and their funding is being cut. This could be a much-needed way of raising money to invest more widely in infrastructure that we desperately need. The query is whether it's going to be borne by people who can't really afford it or having to come in and out for uh, lower-paying jobs or whether actually it's going to be borne by individuals who can afford it. If it's the latter, then it's brilliant. If it's the Mm. former, then it's shocking. Travelling between the cities, I mean, we do hearings all over the north. We normally get the train as opposed to travelling. So I don't think that's going to be too much of a problem. But I think you are right that those cities that are going to struggle are uh, the Sheffields, potentially, you know, places like Preston, which are just that little bit less accessible than you need to drive to. So I think overall there's probably going to be a net benefit, but that is a very, very personal opinion. Yeah. Helen, what's, what's your thought on this? It's interesting, isn't it? It always comes back to connectivity between the cities, which is key. You know, we're, we're meant to be building a northern powerhouse here. We've got an area that's kind of, as I said, similar to the size of London in some areas of greater London. And yet that connectivity just doesn't add up. This is going to make things harder, isn't it, for business? It is. But I think the driver for this particular initiative is the fact that at least a thousand premature deaths are occurring because of this pollution in the air. I mean, we're not even at legal levels. So, you know, if you kind of balance it out and weigh it out, um, that surely should take precedence over, you know, the inconvenience of driving a diesel car. I think the key for this, if you are going to impose a cost on, is that you don't penalise people who can't afford it already and who are already struggling. Mm. So I think the government, if they're going to impose that, they, they need to think about that. I mean, as a personal business owner in Manchester, this is not good because we're already struggling with you know people having to pay more money for car park longer hours so before you could park for free after six now you park for free after eight it will have a detriment on you know the town center which is already struggling in so many sectors yeah and you're seeing a number of restaurants already going into administration Mm -hmm. so there needs to be that kind of balance Uh, there needs to be better transportation like um you know deborah said Mm -hmm in order to encourage more people to come to the city centre to spend money or, or stay after work. Mm. That's, that's the biggest issue. Yeah. I mean, I think they really missed the point in terms of getting connectivity between, for example, Leeds and Manchester. You know, it takes ages to get to Leeds, and yet it shouldn't. If we had the same kind of transportation in London, we would have had that investment already. So I think, you know, there, there's a kind of a micro-chat about this this issue but there's also kind of the government centrally have to do something as well who, who here gets public transport into manchester where we are every morning do you take who here thinks that's a good service and you always get here on time and you're happy everybody's put their hand down everyone puts yes i'm going to lunge to you because it looked like you had something to say it's awful i travel the country on a regular basis and i'm getting trains at five six o'clock in the morning to arrive at nine o'clock in places and weather dependent the transport infrastructure is absolutely appalling 
Um, Would you say that's particularly between the northern cities? Absolutely. Or? Yeah. I, I travel to Leeds quite often. I was in Newcastle this week and, you know, I'm d- getting delays for meetings and arriving in court and tribunals and it's just appalling having to explain to your client, oh, well, I did set off on time, but it's terrible. It's absolutely appalling and they need to do something about it. Is that other people's experience as well? Yes, I'm lunging right to the back. I'm lunging past the tripod. This is a first. It is getting quite ridiculous travelling every morning and then the train will stop all, all, all of a sudden in the middle. So then you're stuck on a hot train full of people at 8 o'clock in the morning who, as, who are as tired as you. For example, I've seen someone faint on the train before. It's got that hot and it's got that tiring waiting for it. So I think that there are health risks it mm. it being late and it and it and it being stalled. Yes, um, I'd like to just make a positive point. I live um, quite a way out of Manchester. I live in Holmes Chapel, so I'm on the crew line. And actually, I would say that the trains are better now than they have been. So that might just be one example of where it's working better. But I can certainly choose to actually get the train far more regularly than I actually would. It's more about the car parking now at the train station rather than actually getting into work. Thank you so much. Well, look, as ever, this is the start of a conversation. I mean, if you live in Sheffield or Leeds or Newcastle or Preston or Lancaster, wherever you live across the north, come and do share your experiences. You can use the hashtag NPW podcast. You can tweet us at North Power Women or, of course, email podcast at northernpowerwomen.com. Thank you so much. Right, let's go um, to our second question of this evening. And we want to talk about mental health because um, last month, of course, it was World Mental Health Day. And we now know that eight city firms have pledged to change working practices that can cause mental health problems for their employees. Now, the firms have said mental health issues impact people at all levels and in all sectors. Changing working practices have increased those pressures significantly. We have a responsibility to make a change. How important would you say this is? Helen, I'm going to start with you. I think it's extremely important and I think it will be rolled out across all sectors. I mean, you know, you need to have um, improved communication between employees, between the bosses and employees. You need to have rest periods. Um, You need to be able to delegate work so that you can actually have your holiday. You know, these are basic human requirements and needs. Yeah. And I think if people just go, well, it's part of the job and you've got to do it, you know, they're going to see big issues in the future. People are going to be very ill. There'll be absenteeism. Um, there may even be claims against the firm if you're thinking that way. What do you, what do you think has changed, Helen? Because I'm thinking, you know, you work in law. Law is known as a, an incredibly high pressure, lots of deadlines, people's lives on the line. Hasn't it ever been thus, though? Has it got worse? Has it got more stressful and pressurful? If if so, why? I think there's more and more competition with lawyers, so therefore the billable hours, you know, is is really um, pressurising. You've got clients that are very demanding, and, you know, if you don't service them well, they will quite easily move. There's less of that loyalty nowadays. So I think from mm-hmm. that element, there's that stress which is imposed, you know, from top down. Mm. But, you know, at Clark Wilmot, we see that issue too. And we've been focusing on how to improve, you know, the work workplace. It is about work, but also it's about people. And you're only as good as your team. So, you know, for me and, and my team, I sit in corporate, it's, you know, known for very, very long hours. But I'm pleased to say that 
I encourage a work-life balance. We encourage agile working. We try to make it work for the employee because if they're happy, then you know the work's done well. And I think you know in the long run, it's good for everybody. How, how much, James, do you think technology plays into this? Because I suppose it wasn't that long ago when we couldn't really get a work email at 10 o'clock at night in our hand while we were watching TV. And now we can. I know people say, well, look, just because you can reply to the email doesn't mean you have to reply to the email. But just a quick show of hands, who here gets a work email and instantly feels that sort of gut-wrenching, uh, I'll put my hand up. Yeah, most of us. Uh, do you think technology does play a part? I, I think it's helped and hindered. So we're family lawyers. And so our clients, in addition to the threat of moving the and all the other pressures they put on you, we all suffer from a thing called transference, which is, in essence, they've had a bad day, they've had a row with their partner, which we completely understand and are in a very emotional position. Often you are their first port of call, and that kick then gets passed on mm. to you. And unless you've got the kind of emotional and psychological tools to deal with that, that can really take a toll on you, particularly if you are relatively junior and you've only just started out on your career. Add to that email and the fact that nowadays, you know, the service that people are demanding, and I don't think it's necessarily wrong with what we do, is all the time. The issues they're having at home with their spouse or in relation to their children or whatever it might be don't happen between nine to five. It could be a Saturday morning or eight o'clock in the evening. And actually, it's a commitment that we make to those clients that will provide that service. But you can only do that if you provide the support within the organisation to go along with it. Now, the flip side of that is... You know, every one of our staff is able to work from home. We are cloud-based. That means you can, you know, do the school drop-off like I do. You can go to sports day. You can work two days a week or four days a week because the client, that, that, that need for a bum on a seat in an office in the centre of a city has gone. So in that sense, you know, it's massively helped. But I think email is, you know, can be the curse of people's lives. Do you think there's a, there's a generational issue going on here as well? I hear from quite a lot of younger people saying, we're not going to accept that. Whereas perhaps a generation ago, people would accept that, well, hey, you do 80-hour weeks, that's, that's what this job is. I think that's absolutely something that we see. Uh, we, I mean, to the, we've got our own firm. We've got, you know, 29 people now, 18 lawyers. But actually, rather than it being, you know, what I would say to the bosses is rather than even thinking of it from a moral point of view, if you have trouble with that or you think, well, hang on a second, I did it, why shouldn't you? What I would say is actually it's a massively important commercial decision because what is the point in rinsing your employee for a 1,600-hour target and finding that three years qualified, he or she has a breakdown and they are absolutely no use to you whatsoever after that? Whereas actually, if you provide the necessary support and they are there and loyal to you year in, year out, it's a great commercial investment, quite apart from being mm-hmm. the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the final thing I'd say is to people, there's a, you know, this seems to be a kind of a new thing which is just gaining traction, but actually there are loads of tools and facilities out there where you can help teams. We have a, we have a psychologist who we, the firm, pay a monthly retainer to. And we pay a monthly retainer to her so that staff, if they need be, could telephone her on a completely anonymous basis in respect of whether they've got stuff going on at home, stuff going on at work or whatever. And actually, she's been doing this for... It's only something we've recently set up, but she's been doing this for 10 years. So it's great that it's finally gaining traction, but what I would say is there are actually loads of facilities out there. We give our team much lower targets. We don't give them fixed targets. And actually, if you recruit the right people, you don't specifically need to give them a number for them to hit it, if they're incentivised and motivated, then they're going to do the work they need to do mm. rather than actually putting that additional pressure on when you've got to record your time every day to that level, otherwise yeah. there's going to be pressure. 
So I think it's incredibly important. I think it's the morally the right thing to do. But actually, what I would say to bosses is it's massively the commercially right thing to do yeah, as well. that's interesting. Deborah, what about your experience? Have you seen this sort of merging of recognising an employee is also an actual human being with a whole load going on in their life outside the office door as well. And it, it... Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, at Novitas, I don't know if you'll know, is part of the Close Brothers group, and um, we have um, a programme in place um, which um, is available 24-7 for staff. Um, in actual fact, I'm going to admit I wasn't aware of this until I asked uh, because I was coming on here today. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but that covers all personal issues, um, you know, not just mental health. Uh, there's face-to-face counselling, there's online counselling, there's a website that provides a wealth of information. And I think if a person is, you know, under stress at work, I think that having that sort of wealth of information, if you like, might help them in the first instance to start to manage the stress I think it's also important, though, that um, employers and um, managers are trained to recognise stress at an early level. Mm -hmm. I think otherwise, you know, well, it basically becomes compounded and people start suffering from uh, anxiety and depression and eventually don't want to come into work, and that costs money. And when I first, um, you know, thought about this question, I thought, well, it will roll across all sectors. It's already in sort of, you know, big private health corporate companies have already got things in place, you know, but will it trickle down to smaller businesses? Will they be able to afford it? But apparently a review um, by Deloitte has, uh, has actually found that for every pound spent on mindfulness you know, they get £4.20 back, the business gets £4.20 back. So from a productivity point of view, it is worth it. It's interesting you say this, because I know whenever I have these discussions on on broadcast radio, there is a whole generation of listeners who will get in touch and say, Generation Snowflake, you know? So, oh, oh, it's hurt your feelings, big deal, get on with it, man up, get on with your life. That is changing, that's shifting, you feel. Because actually, as you've just said, it doesn't work, that attitude. Yeah, I think it's definitely changing. I think that um, celebrities have helped to some extent, like Professor Green, talking about, you know, being open about mental health. You know, uh, back in the day, I mean, it, it wasn't talked about and it was seen as a weakness to go to your employer and saying, you know, I'm stressed, or, you know, and especially in the law, you know, it just, it just was unheard of. But... I think today, I think today that people are more open about it. Has anyone here has any positive experiences with with support from in mental health from work? Perhaps you, perhaps you're, you know you're aware that your company. Yes, I'm going to lunge to the back. <sighs> Go to the back of the room. Yes, I actually work for Clark Wilmot. I took four weeks out at the start of the year due to anxiety and depression, and they were so good with me. They put me in touch with counsellors that we provide for the firm. They really helped me. And I'm in such a better place now than I was at the start of the year because of it. And you felt completely able to go and talk to them. There wasn't that kind of gut-wrenching, they're not going to listen. I think at first it was, but it's that anxiety that gets you and you think you can't. But I think after a week or so, and it was the support I was getting and like our friends at work that helped. And it did, it it felt so much easier to talk about and I had a lot of support. It's okay to not be okay. And I think that's what people need to understand. And it's okay to tell your employer you're not okay. Because they do actually want to help and they do care. Mm. Thank you. Anyone else? Yes, I'm coming back to the front. 
What I've seen is an increase in employers and companies asking for well-being policies and putting ideas into place such as yoga and meditation and having somebody coming in on a weekly basis mm-hmm. doing that and also paying for things like gym memberships and so forth. So touching on the well-being aspect of it to also help um, on the mental health side of things and having that release and being conscious that people are people, not robots. Thank you so much. It's just brilliant to hear your stories. Again, get in touch, please. Let us know what experiences you've had, perhaps positive or negative. You can share what your firm is doing if you're an employer or an employee. Podcast at northernpowerwomen.com or, of course, you can tweet at northpowerwomen. Now, this is, I know, one that many of you will be very, very conscious of. In the world of law, in the legal world, there are more women than men in entry-level jobs. And yet, less than a fifth of partners... A pizza's arriving, it's fine. (laughs) Yet less than one-fifth of partners in the top ten UK firms are female. Now, do you think this will organically shift as those, those younger female lawyers advance in their careers? Or does more need to be done? James, I'm going to start with you. I think we're miles off just an organic shift. I mean, it's a funny question, this, for me, because I am... I've only ever had a female supervisor in law. I've only ever had a female head of department. And I've only ever had a female managing partner. So for me, it's absolutely sort of anathema to an extent to read those statistics. The flip side of that is my wife is a director of a food company. And I see the challenges that she has to deal with. Like what? So if you are conducting a two-career household, we have a nanny, but she doesn't live with us. Unfortunately, we can afford to do that, but it's probably the only way that you can release two careers because there is still an expectation of a bum on a seat. As a man, and this is not me doing a Donald Trump, isn't this a terrible time for white men and isn't it a great place for women, but what I will say is this. When my son, I have an eight-year-old and a five-year-old, when my son was born, it was very interesting because to watch some of the other dads There were women in the firm who could request, say, four days a week or a flexible working policy and still, for the first time, be properly taken seriously. Look, you can go down to four days a week or have flexible work and still be considered ambitious. As a man, were you to request four days a week or a flexible working policy, you were written off as a father as opposed to someone who was still committed to their career. Now, I'm not saying that for sympathy. What I'm saying is... We are so far off a situation where we're we're saying, right, we're treating everyone equally and we need to release staff and give them flexible work to the extent that it doesn't really matter whether you're male or female. You are entitled to have a family if you so wish. You're entitled to pursue other interests if you so wish. And we need to build a flexible working arrangement to enable that to happen, that even the middle-class white male is finding that it's a challenge to try and be a dad as well as a uh, as, as, as well as a, a committed career individual. Do you think that's because no men at the very top have done that yet? And the reason I ask you, there's a great um, organisation called Catalyst, which is a worldwide organisation. I've met the, the, the European director, and she talks about working with a firm in Switzerland which had a male CEO. And it was a very, very close-knit company, even it was a very large company, and there was that very sort of... Um, personal relationship between the CEO and his staff and he was always out on the floor you know he wasn't someone hid away in an office ever he was very much part of the day-to-day conversation and he became a father and for the first uh, two and a half years of his daughter's life he was at work just as much and then he decided he wanted to change that and he sent out a a video on the intranet 
just before he went off on his annual leave, his summer leave, and he said, just to let you know, when I come back, I'm going to be leaving at midday on a Friday, every Friday, because my afternoon is going to be with my daughter. And Alison said, when that went round the office, the look of relief on the men's faces, because it was... <coughs> Okay, we've got permission. Like you said, no one in that senior level had done that until he'd done that. And then it was like, okay, we can now be taken seriously. Does it need some top men to admit they want to be with their kids more? Do you know what? I think that is interesting because I think there's a real danger when you sit here to sit and say, well, this is what we do for the women in our firm, right? So I'm not saying this. I'm going to tell this story as someone who specifically said something to me. So I do the school drop off every single morning. And one of our teams specifically said the reason they feel that they can also do the school drop-off is because the boss, in inverted commas, male or female, is doing it themselves. Because it's all well and good to say, look, it's flexible work, it's not a problem, drop them off. But if the boss is sitting there from 7 in the morning till 8 at night, there is still that tendency to walk in and feel bad because you've chosen to do the drop-off and need to leave early. We have a sports day policy where if you miss your child's sports day, you get sacked. Obviously, <laughs> because it's two hours, right? But the point is, I think if you don't have that stronger message, then it's still going to keep repeating itself over and over and over again. And in the nicest possible way, I think it is a generation thing. I have a 72-year-old female partner at the firm, and um, she won't listen to this because she won't know how her podcast works, and I'll tell that to her face. <laughs> but she is absolutely the worst for it. You know, the sort of the bums-on-seat mentality, the, well, she's junior, isn't she? She should wait until I'm ready to talk to her about this case. You know, and it's kind of... So I am hoping, and I would say all of this to her face. Um, so, but, so I think there will be generational shift, but I think we've got a long, long way to go. What's her name? Beth Wilkins. Please welcome Beth! Uh, she's, not, she's not She's not here. Um, Deborah, loads of women starting, more women than men starting. Granny Wilkins, we call you watch your back later. Don't drink any drink that Beth makes you over the next few weeks. Deborah, loads of women starting in law. When it gets to the top, where have they all gone? Will it just change? Because if there are more women than men starting now, does that mean that osmosis, whatever, cream rising, they'll get to the top? Or does something need to be done? I think that something probably does need to be done, but I do think it will happen. It'll just be a very gradual progression. The, the, the law's always been slow. Um, in all aspects. I think that, I mean, obviously, um, years ago, it was mainly men coming into the law. And we had this image of the uh, white middle class uh, male, um, you know, in um, like the higher positions in firms and in the judiciary. But that has changed. There are more and more women being appointed to the, to the judiciary. And I think in order for it to change within legal firms, there is going to have to be more flexibility but I have to say that since I had my children and since since I started my career in the law nearly 20 years ago I think things have changed massively there's friends of mine who've been appointed to the judiciary and I think that uh, although I didn't have that support at home because I was a single parent I think a lot of people do have that support now but as James <coughs> said I think that the changes have to be for men and women yeah. you know we, we have to get away from this yeah obviously the women have to have the babies but we don't have to stay at home uh, and if we both want to work then there's got to be flexible arrangements within the workplace for both sexes 
it will come about. I mean, it's only now that there are more women coming into the law than men. And eventually, <coughs> I think we will see women sat around the, you know, the boardroom table in some of the top firms. But it will take time. Helen, what's your view on this as another woman in law? I, I want to go back to history and I want to tell you about a case in 1913. It was Beb against the Law Society. And there was this Lord Justice Fillimore who stated in the UK Court of Appeal that he would uphold the Law Society's ban on women working as lawyers. That was only 105 years ago. And 100 years ago, we didn't have the vote. So that was a generation ago. It takes time for change to happen. And it's great to know that today we've got over 50% of women wanting to train as lawyers. But it will take time for them to gradually go up the ranks. Do you think that will naturally happen, though? Or do you think there will still be this drop-off? Well, I think because women have the babies, you know, there will naturally be that drop-off. If you actually look at how the training process works, it's pretty tough. You've got to do a training contract. Then you become, you know, a junior lawyer. Then you progress slowly ultimately to be partner that process itself could be 10 to 15 years mm. people have different life interests during that time your journey and your path changes so whether you're a woman or a man people do drop out but um, does, does law need to change because who who wants to work like that as you said men or women i think law is a very traditional um outfit and you know you go in with your eyes open there has been talk of glass ceilings whether it's for women, whether it's for ethnic minorities, you know, I'm both. So potentially I could well have not got to the top. Um, but everybody can bloom where you are planted. You can find the place that suits you. I mean, I recently kept, kept in touch with my first boss at Clifford Chance, and he himself quit Clifford Chance after 35 years. And I said, why on earth have you quit? And he said, I can't hack the billable hour either. <laughs> so, you know, end of the day, law itself, it's a machine, it's a beast, and you go in it and you, and you have to do what you've got to do. But I think what we want to do, and in particular at Clark Wilmot, we want to address this. We know there are issues in the law per se. We know that, you know, in Manchester, for example, we have four women partners um, out of 11 so we're getting there but we also acknowledge that with the hard work we have to give people flexibility so we actually had a meeting only yesterday about agile working we also want to be um, role models I think that's important you, you have to help people to get on the ladder so people that ask for work experience we're always very open to that we we take on trainees and paralegals we we give them as much as they want to see or do. And um, we want to be visible. And in particular with that point, one of the latest things, the projects that we've just done is a book called Cybersecurity. Great bedtime read. Yeah, it's, yeah. it puts you to bed straight away. <laughs> and actually, three of the contributors are myself, Susan Hall, and Sally Penny. Cybersecurity, if you think about that industry in itself, mm. is men, isn't it? It, it really is. It's, it's a man's world. So for three women to actually contribute and for me to edit it and put my name on it, we have to break the mould. Mm. You've got to stand up and be counted. If you don't actually say something, 
people don't hear you. Also, clients realise that 50% of their customers are women. So to have somebody on, on the table who's a woman, it ain't a bad thing, is it? So I think, yeah, organically it will change. But, you know, looking at historics, it was only 105 years ago. I couldn't have been a lawyer. You know, I wasn't born yet. But, you know, you couldn't be a lawyer. It's taking time. But, you, you know, you can't change it immediately. Who, who here, who's perhaps at, at the start of their career, is confident if they wish to, they can get to the top? No one. Oh, and there's a couple. No, they see just a little shy. I'll just lunge. I'll, you've got to speak up. That's what Helen was saying. Let me lunge towards you. Hello. Um, so I'm quite junior in my career, being a paralegal in the corporate scene. So I do work closely with Helen. Um, one of my sort of fears going into corporate um, and starting my legal career is sort of not intimidation but the lack of maybe female role models Mm -hmm. and I think being an ethnic minority as well that's another barrier that I have to overcome as well as being female so for me it's coming to events like this which I do find very empowering to meet different individuals from various backgrounds but I think one of the things that we need to break go into a couple of these events and just sort of seeing how I think corporate perhaps in general developed is perhaps the lack of networking events for maybe females because I think in the corporate world especially there's a lot of maybe your typical I don't say you know your white middle-class male Mm -hmm. but that for me being junior is something that I do find intimidating but fortunately I'm at a place at Clark Wilmot where I am surrounded by you know female role models so I think it's important that businesses do tackle this and they do look for the junior members who they are surrounded by because that is what would motivate me to want to continue and to perhaps aspire to be a partner. But at the moment, fortunately, I do have that around me, whereas my peers, perhaps, at the city firms may not have that around them. So I think that does definitely need to be addressed at my level. That's interesting. So it's not just, you know, you're saying, yes, I'll put my hand up, but seek me out as well. Look around you. Anyone else? Harold, I'll come to you shortly. I'll, just, I'll speak to Emma. Yes, Emma, hello. Yeah, so it's a slightly different take. And this year we saw gender pay gap reporting, which is all over the BBC, as you know, and, and all over the press. So all employees, over 250 employees, had to report on their pay differentials between men and women. And out of that has come quotas of women on boards. And our CEO reported in our like, internet publication that in the next five years there'd be a sort of 25% increase of female equity partners so I called him up in it and said, you know, we've all worked, as Helen has touched upon, and as James mentioned, it's a circus, the, the whole work-life balance, and I've no life outside of work. I don't know how you manage it. But the last thing you want to do is get to be a fairly senior partner and then someone say, do you know what, we need a few more women on our board, so she'll do, she'll do, she'll do. Because it's really hard, and when you get there, you want to get there on your merit. And I think, you know, that engenders respect from your male counterparts. So, so you fear that if... If there was some sort of quota, you wouldn't have respect and you wouldn't, you wouldn't be proud. Yeah, so one of our colleagues this year was promoted to equity. And I really felt for her because it was on the back of this firm-wide internet publication that said, we're aspiring to this more number of female promotions. She's probably she, good enough anyway, though, no, to be fair, she, isn't she? She's yeah. phenomenal. She got it on her merit and everyone understood that. But for the next five years of promotions, you don't want people to be thinking, do you know what, I'm a quota because I know they need more female bums on seats. This is, this is, this is, we could talk and talk and talk. I'm going to lunch to you, Harold, for a final comment, if you would like to make one. Um, I think there has to be a seismic change because 
all the clients that we all act for in this room are very diverse. So there's got to be diversity both in relation to ethnicity and also in terms of gender. Uh, I think what will help that is actually technology. So at Shores, our technology is pretty good. So agile working, I, I see that working at its best. I'll give you an example. Someone in my team works part-time um, and then works from home on a certain day. And, you know, as long as the work's done, we're not bothered. And if she wants to progress her career, you know, she'll be judged on what she achieves and what she produces as opposed to whether she's a woman or, um, you know, a stay-at-home mum. It's, it's, you know, yeah. things have to change, uh, but I think they will. And as Helen says... It's a gradual process, but I think technology will really push that. We could talk and talk and talk, but ca- let's carry on talking. I'd love to hear your responses as to what Emma, you know, Emma said. Do you want a seat at the table if perhaps you've had been given a little bit of a helping hand, whether it's to do with your ethnicity, your gender, your working hours? Just get in touch. Do let us know. Uh, at North Power Women is where you can tweet. Podcasts at northernpowerwomen.com is where you can send an email. We would love to hear from you. Is anyone else boiling? It's boiling, boiling. Let's go and have some of those snacks promised by Sally Penny. And a huge round of applause. Thank you so much for coming here this evening. Thank you for being part of the podcast. Thank you to our wonderful panellists, to Helen and to Deborah and to James as well. Thank you so much. Thanks again to our hosts and panellists in Manchester. We would love you to come along to one of our future panels. As I said, it's a brilliant way to network. Uh, Just head to northernpowerwomen.com, sign up to the mailing list. You'll get news and alerts about future panels, or you can get all the info on Twitter at North Power Women. Now, you heard a little bit about Sally Penny in the introduction to the panel. She's a barrister and also founder of Women in the Law UK. I sat down with her to find out more about what inspires her and why she first decided to go into law. Oh, wow. Um, I think I've always had a sense of correcting unfairness or injustices. Um, And actually, my own background is my parents were immigrants, the Ghanaians, by heritage and background, and they're medical. So actually, the vision was that I'm the eldest of five children. Um, That was a path that was for me. But, I mean, it might sound a bit silly, but there used to be a programme called Rumpole of the Bailey. Yes. Oh, yes. He wears similar ages. Lots of younger people. When I talk in schools and I mention it, they don't know. Then they all go on YouTube uh, to find out who he is. And he was an overweight and what might, I suppose, typically these days, often coined um, white middle-class man, uh, who was a barrister wearing the wig and representing people who tended to look more like me. And and I thought, oh, crikey, I could do that. Um, Did you really? So you're sitting on the sofa on a Sunday night watching Rumpole thinking, I identify with him. Well, I wasn't sure that, yeah, I just thought, that looks great. And then, and of course, we were never really allowed to watch television, so it was a treat, you know, every now and again. And then I was get, get out the books out of the library to read it, you know, to just find about a world that was so alien to my own. But actually, it was giving a voice to people, whether it was companies or individuals, in situations where they didn't have them. And I really would just rather like the advocacy. Um, and actually, you know, a lot of my work, and uh, when I started even, was publicly funded work. So it wasn't for love nor money, if I can say so. It really was about, um, yeah, 
correcting inequalities in society and I suppose unevenness uh, in society. So yeah, so that's why. And I really like being an advocate. I like being in court, and I like um, you know, all the things that go with that. So when you stood up at school or at college or when you took those choices and said, yes, I'm, this, I'm going to law and my, my aim is to be a barrister, did anyone look at you and go, but you're not a middle-aged, middle-class white man and not take you seriously? Did you ever have people not taking you seriously? Yeah, I think careers were like, oh, well, you're a black woman um, and then anybody else for that matter. But, you know, I'm Catholic, you know, so um, there was a sense of positivity about things uh and i'm quite a positive person but yeah i was never taken seriously and equally i remember even at university even when i was a pupil it became very apparent to me that the status quo mm. i was not and even going for what would be training interviews so pupillage interviews which is how you get the job to be a trainee in a barrister's chambers for solicitors is different there's a training contract and I would go to several interviews and you know there'd be exams often and it never occurred to me really that I was a minority if I'm honest with you but when I went to interviews and saw that you know there weren't very many women uh, uh, and then that you sort of look around and then when you go went into the interview rooms uh, quite often there weren't an awful lot of women yeah I did think oh, cra- oh yeah cracking Okay, there's something going on here, but it, it made me, in a way, without sounding sort of over the top. I said I was positive. My parents had drummed into me because when I said I want to become a barrister, they weren't very impressed. But I, they weren't very impressed. No, they, I mean, <laughs> I, initially I wanted to be a policewoman, but they said I was too short. But that was another way to sort of uh, deter me. And then they were saying, you know, this is a profession where we didn't have many minorities, and we didn't know anybody who was a barrister. So to them, it must have just seemed like ludicrous not that they believed in that but they drummed in I had to be twice as good there's a lot going on at the moment about actually burnout and being good enough is okay but I've just that's an alien phenomenon to me you had to be twice as good as everybody else because you weren't the norm and so um and, and I just wonder if part of the burnout is other people have had the same things drummed into them. So I did always have to work just as good. I did stay up much. I still stay up quite late now preparing uh, for my anything. I've got three children. So, yeah, it, it wasn't a, you know, go girl. It was kind of like, what are you talking about? Are you I, want, I want to touch more on that notion of having to be better just to keep up in a moment, actually. But I want to talk to you about when you first became a barrister because um interviewed Cherie Blair on this podcast a few oh, months wow. ago so she was talking about when she became a barrister there weren't changing rooms for women I mean oh, she literally walked in and went where do I get changed and they went the car I mean there was nowhere for her to go I mean things are different now but did you did you notice differences as a woman Cherie's right because actually you know it wasn't that long ago there's a law you know that had to be passed for women to be able to wear trousers so, you know, and, and I was benefiting. So I always wore trousers every day when I first started becoming a barrister. That was almost 20 years ago. But on the bench, so that people making the decisions in cases, there weren't many of those. And that, for me, was quite startling, um, that actually the people making the decisions were not representative. Well, you know, for example, in employment law, where I also practice, of, the, of those who were in the courtroom or the people who are outside and more so on the jury you know that those making the decisions did not reflect those sitting on the jury who were representing you know of of the public Mm -hmm. so I'd really yeah so I soon became I mean I just got on with it if I'm completely honest with you I knew I had to be good there was no time for messing about and um I just got on with it I think 
it became more for me and why I said things I went in the law when I had children, because I really felt it. That was like starting again. Really? You felt yeah. it was that tough? Yeah, I, I, I felt like, you know, there wasn't any real opportunity to discuss what's going to happen, because Barris is a self-employed. I'm sure Cherie would have said, but there was no discussion about, you know, when are you coming back and, and uh, what would you want to do when you come back? Uh, I mean, you know, women were hiding pregnancies because they were worried that solicitors wouldn't then instruct them or the clerks may not give them any of the quality work because you're going off. Now, you know, a positive notion would be actually not to stress you out because you're pregnant um, over big cases, but it's having the choice about what sort of work you wanted to do. That's what I struggle with. I think when a lot of women come back to work, it's having the option or being offered the quality work, which would mean that you're doing quality work so you can apply to be a QC, or you're doing work which is testing your ability so that you can apply to be on the bench if you so wish, or become a partner, whatever. It's the assumption that you've had a baby, so that's it. Or you might you prefer to be looking after the baby all the time, or you want to work part time. Those conversations were really there. I mean, even to say, you know, I'll, I'll carry on working, but not not Fridays if there's an option, or uh, you know, if a case overruns, of course everybody's going to work on Fridays. But by arrangement, and yeah, I mean, I did find that tough because there was no conversation and nobody really talked about it. And so you had to make your own way. So I struggled with that. And then, you know, I've got three children and I learned obviously from each one. And I thought, I think I need to do something about this. So we have got more role models. So we are upskilled. So we do think about, you know, what kind of incomes do we need to be earning to make working viable? Um, what other avenues are, are there? You know, what other ways are there to keep one's brain sane? You know, should I write a chapter in a book? I write a lot of articles, you know, but passing that on to those who are coming, be, you know, behind me. Mm. So, yeah, it, it was tough and I've learned from it. So I just want to share it. It does seem as well, some of the research that I've done and looking at attitudes within law, that about talking about being at the top tier, hardworking women don't do as well as hardworking men. And, yes. and that's the issue. I yes. mean, the women are there and are working hard and are capable, but still aren't achieving. So maybe that's where that does have come into play. It's not like there aren't enough great women to fill those roles. It's yes. just reaching out a bit more for them. Exactly, exactly. And sometimes they just go, do you know what? You know, having the choice of having a nanny so that you don't ever see your kids or um, and, and then climbing up to the top and the equity partner or not doing it. Those two shouldn't just be the only options available. There are other options and it has been visible about it. You know, you can have a perfectly good legal career being a general counsel of a large bank or, you know, of large firms. It's a slightly different route, obviously, and it's different route to what I've taken. But that's, a, you know, it's quite a big issue. And when people are talking about in the podcast session, not seeing those visible role models in the commercial sector, it's because actually some of the women just thought, I don't want that. You know, I'm good, but I don't want that. Mm. And they and they have taken the choice then to drop out. I don't I don't like the fact that the retention is not great in law at the senior levels because it's a large investment. Women are great assets to any most and most employers. So for them to invest in a career of that sort and then sort of slope away and leave and not even think about the careers, it's it's a loss of a massive asset to our economy. 
you know, we're talking about moral argument, yeah. but the commercial argument is quite simple. We know the more diverse boards are more profitable. Not tokenism, you know, there's no point getting a load of you know, dead weight. We know that. But on a purely commercial uh, um, argument, we need to get more women to the top because, you know, if we have just 10 men who from one particular background making decisions, we get one outcome. Yeah, and that may be that it's profitable, but it's more interesting, as we know the research shows, when we have more diversity of all, of all backgrounds. And actually, I'm not talking about gender or ethnicity. I'm actually talking about social mobility when I say that. You know, I think we get lost and we get sidetracked. Um, and I know I've set up something called Women in the Law UK, but quite often in the conferences, I'm talking about social mobility. Let's get those people who are skilled, maybe not in the traditional ways that we're used to, in the workplace. Otherwise, it's a dead workforce. And, and that's how we can boost our economy too. My final question is all about you. You run Women in the Law UK. You founded it. You are a barrister. You are a mother of three. You work in, you know, you're a serious criminal barrister. As you said, you, you deal sometimes with very serious mental health cases, with serious sexual violent crime cases. You then go home and a mum to three. How do you switch off and, and go between those roles? <laughs> Quite well, actually. But um, I mean, I also do employment law, so I'm representing quite a lot of you know companies and individuals in very you know unfair dismissals and so on and so forth. Um, I just switch off. I have a very good husband, so he's not a stay-at-home uh, husband. But I mean, I always say I've got three children, four if you count him. And you know, he does his bit, but he's been brought in a quite a traditional background uh, where his mother didn't work and raised them, and then she went back to nursing. So for me. I, I, when I'm in the courtroom, I'm there with my whole self. When I'm at home, I'm there with my whole self, with my kids. We are having fun. I do sometimes dance around the kitchen naked. We do have the Alexa on very loud, um, you know. And when people talk about work-life balance, you know, when I'm there, when, when things are sort of, you know, traumatic and I'm in a really complicated case, I have to say to my children, listen, daddy's in London, um, you know, help me to help you. We all need to be good, no messing about get dressed when I've said so, we need to do inhalers, whatever it is. And I just try to be the best I can be at the different roles. I don't know if that makes sense, you know what I mean? And it's hard, you know? And I do end up buying loads of Proseccos to thank people, um, you know, in, in a realistic a realistic way, you know? And I do read a lot, you know, I do still end up doing organising the street party and, you, you know, for my street. I do end up taking my neighbour who's 94 to Marks and Spencer's to do her shop. It's kind of just squeezing in the positive things that I can do and then, you know, changing to pyjamas on a Friday night for Friday night is movie night with my children and my hubby. But I'm just juggling like everybody else, really. Sally Penny there, founder of Women in the Law UK. A big thank you. Time now for Ask the Hive. It's a place where you ask a question, you get a whole host of advice. And this month it's about female leaders and how to get them. How do we talk to men about increasing women in leadership positions? I think men need to be around female leaders and to be desensitised to women in leadership positions. I think they would hugely benefit from coming along to events like the Northern Power podcast uh, and just to experience what it's like to be here and to hear women's insights. Um, so, yeah, that's how I think they could, they could encourage women in. So that's a good question. I think um, 
so probably most men don't need persuading. They just need to see the value of the woman in a senior role. Um, and I suppose it's not a level playing field. Uh, women generally have to do much better, much better than men, to to reach higher levels. Um, so be very very good, outperform outperform the men, and I think men will will recognise the value and promote you. I think we need to persuade men, the senior stakeholders in the business, of the benefit of having females in senior leadership roles. And a lot of our clients want to see women at the table making decisions. And so for client-focused and client-driven businesses, the male leaders at the top of those businesses need to understand that that's what their clients are asking for. I think it's important that men have conversations with other men not just with women, but uh, that they act as advocates and demonstrate and say when their female colleagues have done something good, make sure they get a level of boosting, um, including things like making sure they get invited to client development events, even ones that perhaps they didn't expect women wanted to go to. So make sure that they've got a seat at the table, keep offering them a seat at the table and act as an example for other men. Thank you to everyone who gave their advice this month. Really appreciated from you, Tar. So here's your question this month. This rings a bell with so many of us. This comes from Kate. I'm terrible at getting feedback from my managers. I take it really personally and dwell on the negatives. Help! So you ask for feedback, you get the feedback, you then can't handle the feedback. If it's something you've battled with, can you help Kate out? Any advice or comments, please do get in touch. You can either record a voice memo on your phone and email it to podcast at northernpowerwomen.com or you can open up WhatsApp on your phone at the Northern Power Women podcast. Here is our number 07928. 387712. That's 07928387712. That's our phone number. Just send us a message on WhatsApp. There's a little microphone icon next to the message window. If you click on that and speak, you then will send an audio message to us. It's that easy. And it saves you typing it all out. So just hold down that microphone icon while you're talking and then your message will come straight to us. That'd be great. Thank you so much. If you need any details again about how to get in touch, they're all online at northernpowerwomen.com. So there we go for another month of great stories, great advice, brilliant ideas. Please, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcast from. We really do appreciate it. We'll even buy you an Eccles cake next time we see you to say thank you. If you'd like to be a future episode sponsor, we would really love to hear from you. Just drop us a line, podcast at northernpowerwomen.com. And a really big thank you to Women in the Law UK this month. The next episode arrives for you on Monday, December the 3rd. Until then, this is the Northern Power Women podcast. I'm Sam Walker, and this has been a What Goes On Media production for Northern Power Women.